This spring and summer 2019, prepare yourselves for an onslaught of stories about the many Boston mass luminaries, innovators, change agents, trailblazers, pioneers, and legends whose successes we've celebrated but haven't received their due like the ones in other cities have. This is the Boston Legends Podcast, hosted by me, Dart Adams. And this is the Boston Legends Podcast. This is a podcast where we highlight all the rebels, the legends, the change agents, and the luminaries that didn't get their proper shine or respect at the time like other regions legends did but we're going to shine the light on them here and now so of course i'm dart adams but i'm here with another person who is well versed in all of these people all these people the movers and shakers that really shaped and formed what we know as massachusetts and boston basketball especially and that man is the john bain Nice to finally have you here, sir. Yes, yes, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No doubt. Uh, one of the things we always wanted to do is shine light on the history and give full uh, context and perspective on what happened before we got to the era post-1972 where Boston and Massachusetts and New England, to a farther degree, actually had enough talent where people understood that we were a force within the world of basketball. But... There was a time before that where that was also the case, and we have brought on Bajan to talk about it. It's, it's, a, it's a good point because, you know, people talk about, and not everybody is going to be familiar with this term, but the Boston Six mm -hmm. and the first year of the shootout in 72 being sort of the cutoff point where Massachusetts, where Eastern Mass was on the recruiting match, specifically mm -hmm. Rochester, Dorchester, and Mattapan, J.P., it isn't as if there were not very strong players coming mm -hmm. out of Dorchester and Mattapan and Roxbury before then, mm -hmm. but they weren't going to this, the type of high schools that might have been highlighted in the Globe and the Herald pre prior yeah, to that. Yeah, and they were the people that did most of the, the publicity. So if you go back and look at archives and look at names, you're going to find them in the Globe or the Herald in their like, listings of who are the, the top schoolboys if you go search. Um, so one of the things was, there's this picture that I remember you sent me. And what's the significance of this picture? Okay, this is a, a club called the Exquisites. And mm -hmm. it's a, obviously a club of young men mm -hmm. standing with a couple of their mentors like Reverend Michael Haynes and a gentleman uh, who was also a junior high school coach in, the, uh, in, in Roxbury that coached some of these guys in middle school. And they're staying in, in Ted Kennedy's Senate office, apparently, <laughs> on a visit to D.C., yeah. like a mini class trip. And the Exquisites was a group of uh, brothers from Roxbury who could all really ball. Uh, most of them were basketball. There might have been some track and field sprinkled in there. Uh, Chuck Shelton, uh, Leo Osgood, Harry Barnes, who ended up playing at uh, yeah. Northeastern in the late 60s. Mm. Peter Parham, Leroy Wilson, guys like that, who all knew each other from hoops and were formed as a sort of a social club to uh, help steer young men on the right path in, mm -hmm. in Roxbury. All right. So when we talk about Boston and Massachusetts basketball, again, it always comes up to 1972. Why? Because that's the year the Roxbury Basketball Association is formed. That's the year the Boston Shootout starts. That's the year the MIAA is formed. But previous to that, there was an explosion of Boston basketball and Massachusetts basketball to the point where out of the ashes of the old Boston Tech League, we have the BNBL. Yeah. 
So can we talk about the 60s in particular in Boston basketball? Okay, what happens in the uh, 60s is you have these kids who are the sons and daughters of either southern immigrants from the 30s and 40s, and mm -hmm. lesser degree 50s, or the daughters and sons of West Indian immigrants from the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. So the city becomes a little bit more black, maybe 15 to 22 percent, yeah. depending on what year we're talking about, 60s, 70s, 80s. Mm -hmm. All those kids are in the high schools. You know, they're in Roxbury Memorial, they're in Tech, they're in Trey, they're in Girls Latin, they're in Boys Latin, they're in English. Yes. And they're playing on the playgrounds and getting better at basketball because basketball was invented in Springfield and accrued here, and it's the post-Koozie era, and they just grew up mm -hmm. um, in, 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 a, in a basketball strong ecosystem, although, again, it, it's not, there, were, there was very strong high school basketball, and the Tech tournament was a big deal in the yes. 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the schools that would come out of the Tech and win it would be like a Somerville yeah. or a Belmont, depending on the division, or a Charlestown, or uh, New Bedford had strong teams. So sometimes the Boston schools would get eliminated in or before the finals by you know a school like Braintree or somebody like that. Where the Boston schools uh, in the early 60s you know, Rins had very strong teams, so they wouldn't get eliminated. When Ron Texera goes to uh, to uh, Memorial, to Catholic Memorial, he's not going to get eliminated. Yeah. He's parade All America three years, and, and he's um, all scholastic four years. So now you're getting these guys, you know, like the um, the um, Stead brothers over at Rins, mm -hmm. uh, Ronnie Texera at, uh, at at Catholic Memorial, who are high school All American, and they're big men. Yeah. But we always had guards. So the guards would go to trade, they play at Roxbury Memorial. They wouldn't be on anybody's recruiting radar because they're gonna get a job, they're gonna yeah. work. They yeah. wanna trade to work. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is, you'd see a little bit about them in the paper, but we knew about them in the community because we saw them play at the Lewis School yes. or Washington Street or whatever, Carter Playground. Mm -hmm. So they were big names to us, but they weren't big names to Duke and Kentucky and Kansas. Mm -hmm. So we get a smattering of guys and in the late 60s, some of these guys get picked up and get D1 scholarships like Russell Lee, mm -hmm. Ronnie Lee's older brother. Yeah. From Hyde Park, he goes to Marshall, one of the mm -hmm. best scorers in Marshall history. Mm -hmm. And he's huge in the nation. He's like one of the biggest players in the nation. Exactly. A Marshall Lewis uh, from Tech makes high school All-American 68. So it looks like an anomaly. And the recruiters yeah. consider it an anomaly. Every few years, there's like a, a Jimmy Walker type. Not Jimmy Walker, of course. Yeah. But somebody on the level of a national radar. Mm -hmm. And people think, eh. Yeah, that's nice every now and then, but you're not New Haven Wilbur Cross. You're mm -hmm. not New Haven Wil uh, Hill House. Yeah. And for a city this size, it's like the paper is focused on the Sox and hockey, mm -hmm. and to some degree the Celts in season and Northeastern basketball, BU basketball, BC basketball, Holy Cross basketball, because these teams have won like NITs and NCAA tournaments, mm -hmm. and, um, and the high school is um, again, it's a big deal with people. Yes. But it's hard, it's not covered by the media like the New York media covered New York high school exactly. or Philly media covered uh, Philly high schools. Yeah. So Radio, TV, print, books about it, lore. It, it just isn't because you got the Bruins and the Sox and the Patriots coming in 1960. Yeah. And that's one of the big issues that we run into when we're trying to like uh, investigate or do any research on this era of basketball, because if we rely on periodicals, Boston schoolboy basketball, as they called it then, especially in the city league, is 
really underreported when we do find articles that really tiny and they're off in a spot in the, in the sports section where we're like, did anybody attend these games? Exactly. Yeah. And we could barely find pictures, and when we do, of course, they're black and white. So, uh, it, it's, it's very, um, you, it's almost one, one of those things, to use a cliche, you had to be there. Yes. Because if you didn't see these guys run in the street, <laughs> uh -huh. or you didn't see them play under the whistle and regulation, it was like, oh, that's the era of Ted Williams and Carl Yastrzemski and Bobby Orr, which it was, mm -hmm. and, and, and the expansion and the a AFL picture, which it was. But underneath the box scores and things like that, there's some really good players coming around in the era of Spider Bennett, yes. Jimmy Walker, mm -hmm. uh, Harry Barnes, Leo Osgood, that if they were playing in the 80s, D1 recruiters would be camping out at their doors. Yeah. And, that's, and this is where it brings us to something that's super frustrating. Me, somebody who's poured through box score after box score, as you well know, when you read old box scores, they're not formulated like box scores now where they tell you how many shots were taken, how many were missed, and other things. It just says how many field goals were made, exactly. how many free throws were made, and total number of points. Yeah, no rebounds, no nothing. No rebounds, no assists. <laughs> so, um, which brings us to a discussion that something that is racked, I've racked my brain about, I've talked to several people, they all have different uh, versions of sure. this story. Boston's, <laughs> Boston, here we, here we go, Boston's, <laughs> Boston's uh, role in the popularization of the crossover. Now, my understanding is that there's a story out there that Sam Jones is the one who recruited, uh, he recruited Jimmy Walker from trade and got him out of trade and got him into the Longberg Institute and which, Spider... Which was Sam's alma mater. Yes, was Sam's alma mater. As the, as, as the lore goes. And, and also Spider Bennett mm -hmm. came along with him. Mm -hmm. But there's another story that he was being coached and taught specifically by another guy exactly. who was popular at a, at a, a specific court in Roxbury. Yeah, exactly. I know the guy's name and nickname and everything. Okay. Yeah. All right, okay. so can we so, get into that story? So to give people sort of an analog, Parallel. The Jimmy Walker was discovered by Sam Jones, and Sam sent him to Lorenberg Institute or Lorenberg Prep, which was a segregated uh, mm -hmm. a, a black male. Actually, it was a co-ed in the Earl Manigault uh, HBO film. It was co-ed. I don't think it was co-ed. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he sent them to his alma mater um, from, trade. from trade is sort of the Diana Ross discovered the Jackson 5 yeah. or Gladys Knight, the Pips sent the Jackson 5 tape in story. When actually it was Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver who yeah. saw them on the Chitlin circuit and sent a tape in. But mm -hmm. very... Well, first of all, it sounds better to have Jack yeah. Diana Ross discover the Jack Spot. And secondly, Gladys did send a tape in, but mm -hmm. Barry had already been hit to them by another by yeah. a guy who had a band. And it took years before they got signed. And, and, and they never used the Bobby Taylor song. Exactly. So Sam was obviously hip to, to Jimmy Walker because Jimmy Walker was 14. He was kind of chubby. He mm -hmm. wasn't refined, but he had a lot of really uh, um, valuable skills in terms of his ball handling ability and his agility, even though he's a little overweight. So mm -hmm. He's like 14. Mm -hmm. And the guy who really worked him out on the playgrounds was a guy named Francis Jefferson, who they call Ringe Jefferson. Yes. Because he went to Ringe. Mm -hmm. He played for K Kentucky State, probably in the late 40s. And he would really work with him on his game. And then Jimmy Walker took a lot of time on the Lewis playground when everybody went home after pickup, when it got dark, mm -hmm. and worked on his own, on his handle, on spin, on reverse, and things like that. And so the crossover piece is that 
He goes down to Lawrenburg, and obviously he's in a backcourt with 6'6", Charlie Scott, and 6'2", Earl Manigault. Yes. So the brother who integrates the ACC and the brother who Kareem says is the, the best greatest, player, best player he ever league. played in the league, yes. These guys are on the same prep school team. Yeah. Segregated. Mm -hmm. So they're playing like the freshmen of Fayetteville State and the freshmen of like Elizabeth City State. Mm -hmm. And they're beating them by, you know, they're beating those teams by double digits. These are all CIAA teams. Yeah, they're, they're playing freshman teams and, and other schools that are like yeah. 13th, you know, 13th grade mm -hmm. uh, academies, private academies, prep academies. Probably the first time that Earl Manigault or Charlie Scott saw a spin move or somebody go underneath their leg to the, and change the ball to the other hand was probably Jimmy Walker. Not some kid in Harlem mm -hmm. or the Bronx or Brooklyn. It mm -hmm. was Walker because they were his teammates. Yes. And everyone insists, even Bill Reynolds, who played for Brown in the 60s mm -hmm. and played against Walker, wrote you know Fall River Dreams and books like that, he insists, and a lot of people insist, that the first person in, in D1 college ball that they ever saw go from their right hand to their left hand to their Scott? leg was Jimmy Walker. And that the first person that they saw regularly use a spin dribble, a spin move, was Jimmy Walker. Because Jimmy Walker hadn't seen Earl Monroe. Okay. Monroe was at Winston-Salem, so there's no TV. Yes. And Monroe's from Philly. Mm -hmm. So he didn't see Earl Monroe. Exactly. So there's that. And then Al Rue goes down to the CIAA. A man who did, no people do not talk about nearly enough. Yeah, Al Rue from Roxbury Memorial. Same period as Winston Bennett, uh, 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 Spider Bennett. Willis Bennett, mm -hmm. Spider Bennett, Sharif Abdurrahim's uncle. Uncle, yeah. Same period as James Walker, about the same age. Al Rue goes down to Delaware State, and in the 66 CIAA tournament, yes. he scores the most points in CIAA tournament history. Monroe doesn't hold the record. Yes. <laughs> and Monroe <laughs> averaged 41 in college. Yeah. So Al B. Rue, he's under the radar nationally. Mm -hmm. But he's a memorial. So the papers are like, eh, uh, Roxbury Memorial, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you don't go deep into tech, mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of schools, again, from I'm trying to think of some of the teams, there would be just a lot of cities that the, the whole city goes to one high school, yes. like Brockton, and they would win the tech. Yeah. Because everybody in Brockton is at Brockton High. And Brockton High is huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So, another story I heard is that in 1963, a player named Jimmy Walker dominated the Rucker League. And one of the people he faced was Charlie Scott. Is that true? That is true. So people in New York knew about Walker and saw his moves and things like that mm -hmm. while he was still at Lawrenburg. Mm -hmm. And to just bring people up to speed of, well, how does this guy become you know, a D1 player, lead the nation in scoring, uh, you know, obviously Jalen Rose's biological father and mm -hmm. the number one overall pick in the NBA draft. Mm -hmm. Bill Blair, who's a nasty player from Roxbury, and his cousin, his cousin, is being recruited by Dave Gavitt's predecessor, Joe Mullaney. Yes. And Bill Blair, Walker's almost like his aunt, tells Mullaney when he's recruiting Blair, you should see his cousin. And that's what led Jimmy Walker to Providence, and mm -hmm. averaging 30 in college, 50 in the game, two-time holiday festival MVP. And actually being on television, which is crucial. Being on TV, well, yeah, got some TV exposure, DCAC, mm -hmm. and the number one overall player in the NBA draft. Such a great athlete that he's the only athlete in the history of sport, team sports, to be the number one overall pick in one sport, and he was the last overall pick in pro football because the Saints, who were expansion team, mm -hmm. just took a chance on him. <laughs> a kid with that kind of reflexes, that kind of balance and agility mm -hmm. and, and vision, mm -hmm. 
would have to be a good wide receiver. And we, yeah. We're going to waste the pick anyway, so we might as well waste it on him. Yeah. So, okay, when we think about Jimmy Walker and what he means to Boston basketball, East Coast basketball, but Boston basketball as a whole, he's the one player that everybody points to and they know. Why? Because he was visible. I can pull up footage of Jimmy Walker doing spin moves, doing the inside hand change, uh, dropping the ball and coming up on the other side, going past somebody, hitting long jumpers. Throwing blind passes to the weak side with one hand. Exactly. Off the, off the dribble. Yes. These are stories that I'm told people were doing before Jimmy and with Jimmy, but we get to see it, which is something that's it's completely different. in our society. Yes. So um, when we think about Boston basketball and the visibility and players actually getting D1 uh, scholarships, as you mentioned before, a lot of those players that were coming out of Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan were playing Division Two. They're playing at segregated schools in the, in the Mid-Atlantic in the South, mm -hmm. which is their first experience with Jim Crow. They've, they've never been to segregated restrooms. When they get to D.C. and Union Station, they got to switch trains and get on the Negro section of the train. These guys didn't know anything about that, unless their parents were recent immigrants from the South. Yes. So, you know, they're at Delaware State. They're at Morgan. Um, there, was a, there was a Delaware State pipeline facilitated by a couple of people. One was Reverend Michael Haynes, who was yes. also involved with the, with the Bruins slash Norfolk House, the, the Bruins, the colored Bruins. Mm -hmm. uh, various iterations of the Bruins were a great semi-pro team. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, and his brother's Roy Haynes, the drummer, exactly. Sarah Bond's drummer, and uh, half-brother. Roscoe Baker's also his half-brother. This is crazy. For Delaware State. So there's a Delaware State pipeline that Josh Colbert, who was the AD of Delaware State, who I think was an All-American football player at Cornell like in the 30s or 40s. Yes. He, look, Jerome Holland, Brett Holland, that's his name, yeah. I'm sorry. He facilitates, facilitates some of that, but it comes out of uh, Reverend Haynes steering kids to Delaware State. And in that pipeline, the first kid was Huey Joyner, who I think was at Roxbury Memorial in the late 50s. Then it's Al Rue in the early 60s. Winston-Salem State had a, a little basketball pipeline from here. It's Spider Bennett in the mid-60s. Mm -hmm. But the first person was Lewis Walcott, or Gene Walcott, the hurdler from Boston Latin. Who is also known as? Mr. Lewis Farcott. Yes. So kids heard about him, and he liked it down there. He was on a track scholarship. And um, even though he didn't stay because he, you know, obviously Sister Bessie got pregnant and he yeah. drops out of school, and the rest is history because he starts going to the temple. Mm -hmm. And then but, he runs into his fellow Roxbury resident in, in New York. Yeah, another West Indian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Minister Malcolm. Yes, exactly. Lived here when he was teens also. So Walcott is happy down there and tells the guys about it. And, you know, word of mouth in those days, you couldn't look up these schools online. No. And your parents didn't know that much about them if your parents hadn't been to college, which a lot of people hadn't. They worked in other people's homes for a living, a lot of people, or they were Pullman porters or nurses or things like that. So there's a little bit of, there's a Winston-Salem pipeline, and the Winston-Salem pipeline, Jeep Jones goes down there after Lewis Walcott. Yes. So he's a point guard. And as we know, Big House Gaines doesn't just give his offense no. to anybody and say, you're my quarterback. Yes. So he had to be able to play. Yes. This guy won 800 games. He's not just going to give you the keys to the mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> to the limo and say, yeah. you know, run my offense for me. Yeah. So Jeep must have been nasty. Yeah. And there's a Jeep Jones Park, Clarence Jeep Jones Park, for anybody who's wondering. The man is a legend. So Jeep is in that pipeline, and then Spider Bennett comes along. And mm -hmm. So these things are not accidental. They're very community, very close, very tight. Everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody plays on the same playground. It's word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, back in those days, in the late 50s and early 60s, kids were so tight that everybody knew each other from either the school board parade, mm -hmm. 
and uh, or things like all the Boston public high schools trained in track and field at White Stadium yes. at the same time of day under the same coach mm -hmm. because one high school coach would get to the track, maybe he had a big student body like Tech, and he would train all the kids from the rival schools mm -hmm. because everybody had to train at 3.30 anyway, mm -hmm. and everybody had to use White Stadium anyway, so they just used one coach. Mm -hmm. That's how, that's how close-knit Boston was. Mm -hmm. And that bred a whole lot in terms of um, – so the BNBL, again, is created in 1969 out of the ashes of the Boston Tech League. And it's the longest-running, continuous municipal basketball league in the nation. Um, and what happens is, in 1972, I mentioned it before, we have the Roxbury Basketball Association, which is Boston's response to the Rucker. It runs from 1972 to 1987, and there are some names. <laughs> some names that played in that league. Uh, and then, of course, the big thing is the explosion of the Boston shootout, which gives rise to the Boston Six, which is kind of Boston's... Uh, coming out party. Yes, <laughs> Boston's coming out party to the rest of the world. So let's talk about that era. Okay, this is how this came about. Again, very organic. Um, after the, the, you know, the great English teams of the late 60s, you know, the team with the chant, you know, who rings, rings the, the bells, bells Owen Wells. Wells, who's our bailer, Tommy Taylor, mm. you know, who's all around, Twinkie Brown, that team. Mm. <laughs> after that, people are like, mm, there's, something, there's something going on here. Jimmy Walker is not just some random yeah, accident. He's not an anomaly. He must have been playing against and with somebody for him to, and, and Willis Bennett and all these guys, Harry, Harry Barnes, Leo Osgood, uh, uh, Ron Texera, Marshall Lewis, Russell Lee, Ronnie Lee is like somebody must have whooped up on them when they were 13 or 14 for them to be this good. Mm -hmm. Let's start finding these kids when they're 14 or 15 years old. So now, you know, there's 71, 72. There's a kid named Stevie Struther. Yes, Stro. And he plays at Washington Park and owns the place. He plays for Dorchester. And one day at Washington Park, when there's like Celts lying in the fence watching, you know, all kinds, you know, Tommy Heinz and all kinds of people are there. He basically destroys Charlie Scott during a pickup game. Mm -hmm. To the point where Charlie Scott, this is, it's, it's not, it's, it's more than a pickup game. It's like a summer league game where you have to pay a, a fee to get in. Yes. Like a, a $10. So <laughs> Charlie Scott gets so frustrated, he kicks the ball over the fence onto Washington Street and, and takes, goes to his gym bag and gets his $10 out and slaps it down because <laughs> he knows he's going to be fine for a forfeit. Yeah. That's how badly Steve Struther. To, you know, the crowd is admonishing him, you know, run the, run the show, show Stroh. And he's just using him. Charlie Scott, the yeah. same guy from, you know, mm -hmm. Jimmy Walker's prep school team who was 6'6 six, six guard All-America. Who has six, been, six, who has been uh, given the thing saying that he's the guy who popularized the crossover. Exactly. And, you know, the first, first uh, prominent black player in the ACC. Yes. So that story, you know, Struther is a year before the Boston Six. So... There's a gentleman who's working out of Coca-Cola in Western Mass in Fitchburg named Ken Hudson, yes. who's the second black NBA ref. Mm -hmm. And he hears, you know, the little buzz about these players here, but he doesn't live here. He's in Western Mass, but he has corporate ties. So he thinks, I wonder what would happen if we got enough of these kids that are coming out next year to put them on a Boston team and bring in teams from other cities, big metropolitan areas like a Connecticut team, a D.C. team, uh, a New York City team, and test their metal. it would do two things. It would give us 
it's sort of a level of how good these guys really are. Because if we get Connecticut, you're talking about Wilbur Cross and, and, and yes. you know, uh, New Haven Lee and, and Hill House and teams like that. And all the Bridgeport, you know, Bridgeport Central, Bridgeport Warren Hardy, all of those schools. Yeah, the ones with reputations. Guys that can, yeah, <laughs> Super John Williamson, Super yes. Campbell, and those kind of guys. Yeah. Those kind of guys. We're going to, but I have to talk to my people at Coca-Cola, but then I don't really know anybody in the Burry like that. I don't have anybody in the community to sort of um, shepherd it for me and be my inroad to the kids. Mm -hmm. So he had to meet Miss Alfreda. Oh, yeah. Alfreda Harris. Alfreda Harris. He had to engage Roscoe, mm -hmm. and he had to engage Jeep because they knew who the kids were, mm -hmm. and he didn't know this landscape. So what comes out of that is a tournament where you do bring in strong metropolitan cities of all-star teams, kids from much larger cities, you know, cities 8 million people, 10 million people, L.A., New York, eventually L.A., to f Chicago, much bigger city, to face the Boston team. Boston is the host. Uh, the early years is at Cabot Gym. Mm -hmm. But Struther missed that because he graduated in 71. Yes. But in 72, you have Carlton Smith at English. You have Ronnie Lee at Lexington. Yes. You have King Gaston's at Memorial. You have Bobby Carrington. You have uh, the brother that uh, integrated Archbishop Williams in Braintree, um, played in the ABA, Bob, another Bob. Mm -hmm. uh, that is Bob Carrington. The other Bob is um, the second Bob, and then you have Wilfred Morrison from Boston Tech. Mm -hmm. And um, if I'm leaving out somebody, they were called the Boston Six by the newspapers and things like that because they were coming out the same year. Yes. And they actually, DC brought Adrian Dantley to the first shootout and some other guys that could really roll. New York brings Phil Sellers, who goes on to the, the undefeated, Phil Sellers. undefeated Rutgers team. Yeah. Bailey was a freshman on there. Yeah, wow. <laughs> they were 31 and up. Mike Dabney, Maya Moore's dad was on yeah. the team. So he's on that before Rutgers. He's on the Brooklyn team. Brooklyn gets upset by D.C., but Boston beats Connecticut in the semifinals when Connecticut had Walter Luckett, who was averaging 39 and some change a game. Yeah. He's from Bridgeport. Yes. They beat them. So Boston plays... D.C. in the final with Dantley, and Boston wins the first shootout. Now people are like, wait a minute now. How did they? <laughs> There's only 550,000. Boston won the Boston. Adrian Dantley is on the three-time high school All-American. He plays for DeMatha, the, the, the DeMatha. UCLA of high school basketball. Yeah. They beat them? Like, what? Brooklyn isn't even in the final. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. I was hearing that people thought there was a typo in the paper. <laughs> it was, it was, it's, it's, it's like these six guys you better come with, we don't care who you are. Because mm -hmm. we used to play with Stroh and against these guys like, you know, Leo and Harry and mm -hmm. Playgirl. We can play. Mm -hmm. So bring, <laughs> bring anybody. <it>. Yes. <laughs> bring it. In later years, L.A., New Orleans, Chicago, a lot of them went home with L's because, mm -hmm. you know, you got the Shannon Crookses, you got the Dupinas, you yes. got Monty Manley. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can play. Yeah. We might, you may not associate us with inner city or black people mm -hmm. yes. or schoolyards or what have you, but... Don't let the TV show, Boston <laughs> Public, and The yeah. Departed, and Mystic River, yeah. and the don't let, let that the fool town, you. <laughs> don't let that fool you. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a reason why the spin move comes out of the, the lowest playground. One of the funniest things I experienced this past summer, um, as you know, Mike Bivens has a tournament uh, for $20,000, and a team from Atlanta descended upon Roxbury, 
and their eyes were wide as saucers when they saw the crowd, and they got beaten <laughs> by a team of Boston guys who were swatting the ball into the third row, crossed them over, had one guy just take over like he was Kimball Walker. <laughs> I have it on video. Um, and they went home with an L. And if you, I could, I wish you could see their faces when they looked around and saw the crowd. Matt Damon wasn't on the team. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg wasn't, wasn't on the team. Ben Affleck wasn't on the squad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what's it's going on? Yeah, this ain't my idea what Boston is, you know. So, uh, Pat, Pat Ewing helped change that a little bit from the other side of the river. Yes, he did. Because Wren's got started getting the national pub, and people were like, mm -hmm. okay, we get it. Yeah. Freddie Hill, four time MEAC, <laughs> all MEAC player at, at, from Brookline at Howard. Mm -hmm. People were like, okay, we get it. All right, we get, we get the message. Yeah. Randell and Wayne. <laughs> exactly. So, We've talked about the Roxbury Basketball Association filtering to the Boston Shootout and the MIA, which was created in 1972 to kind of have to deal with the fact that now we have talent at the Boston North and South, but we're losing a lot of those teams because something we haven't mentioned yet yeah. is uh, post- two, the two elephants in the room, yes. Metco and Bussing. Yes, Metco and Bussing. So 1976 going forward, uh, after the court case came down, and now we're going to consolidate schools. So that means that we're going to take kids out of the traditional schools that they went to in the city. And all busing is, is that we take kids from one place and send them to another place where they aren't. Where the schools were just as hard, where Charlestown, Hyde Park, and Southie had 50% dropout rates, just like Roxbury Memorial and, and Tech. Exactly. Because... Ruth, Dr. Ruth Batson famously did this study, which led to the court case. Yes. And she said that these three schools have the highest dropout rate in the Irish towns and cities. Yes. These three schools have the highest dropout rates in Roxbury and the lowest college admission, average college admission percentage for the senior class, mm -hmm. the same socioeconomic level. Yes. All Garrity did was flip it and send kids to, like, on a bus. Yes. Six o'clock in the morning to go with some kids that they never knew. Yes. They weren't in the chess club. They exactly. Weren't, they weren't on the soccer team. They didn't have any friends. They Schools that <laughs> didn't have hockey was, teams. It wasn't like they were sending them to, to uh, Natick High mm -hmm. or uh, Wellesley High to get like a better education. That's, that's, that's Metco. Yes. This was Fort Bus. <laughs> so why, don't, why would I want to go? I'm nothing against Southie, but I mean, you know, the white kids don't want to go to. Not, it's, it's much more complicated than most people around the country. Yes, exactly. Frame it. It's you're sending a kid from one bad school to another bad school where he doesn't know anybody or she doesn't know anybody at 5.30 in the morning so that the schools will be racially mixed. Yes, which okay. was going to have issues. Now, my experience with busing was that, of course, I started going to school in 1978. And the first school I went to was shut down and turned into condos. I was told this in kindergarten, too, that I was going to be going to another school. That school was already in an area of the South End that was mostly Latino, Black, and Asian because it was next to Chinatown. Mm -hmm. What they did was they bust white kids from Southie and Eastie to my neighborhood. That's my experience with busing. It was white kids with huge eyes coming off the bus, saying the N-word, getting knocked out, and then becoming our best friends and us all playing basketball and football together, and then them dying and going to jail. I mean, you know, Again, there's a lot of nuance to, you know, the dynamics of these things and even how they, they inform, like, the shape of sports in Boston. But what happens is now you're starting to get these kids, and the media covers them differently, who would be at a Don Bosco. Exactly. So Felton Seeley in the mid-'70s, he's at Don Bosco, so he goes to Oregon. 
you know, James Bailey is a Zavarian, so he goes to Rutgers, and he's on that 31-0 and team as yes. a freshman. Yes. Um, kids are going to schools, you know, they're going to the Archbishop Williamses, they're going to the Natics like Bruno Giles. So they're covered differently because the media was already covering those schools because they have good soccer teams, good track teams, good football teams, mm -hmm. and they're the only teams in that city. Yes. So if you got a city with, let's say, 80,000 people, and, and there's one feeder high school for all the junior highs and grads. You're gonna have a good most team sports and most, you know. Like Fall River with Durfee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As opposed to Boston with 40 schools. A rack of, you know, a rack of schools and a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. um, so that changes everything because the recruiters are recruiting a kid essentially at either a private school or a suburban school. He doesn't feel like I gotta go in the hood and look at some guy. Because, mm -hmm. you know, again, pre-internet. So they're not going, you know, to, uh, English, you know, I mean, if English has a great player, they're going to get them. But also, people are either transferring out because their mothers and fathers are more savvy, mm -hmm. or to the point of uh, Metco, you got these kids that are just going to the place that might have the best basketball. Yeah. Like uh, the kid, Gary Burt, in the late 70s, early 80s, he's at Fitchburg, Notre Dame one year. Mm -hmm. He's on Cathedral when they go to the States in 76. <laughs> 77, he's at Ranch. Ranch. He's at Ranch, Cambridge, Ranch. Now, you may not know Massachusetts, but Pittsburgh, and <laughs> Pittsburgh is not in Southeastern Mass. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's all scholastic at all three of these schools in three years, such that the Globe did like a big front page, almost like an expose. <laughs> this kid Gary Burke is like a, a mercenary, but mm -hmm. that was the opportunity yeah. that, was, that came about because of uh, Metco. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, uh, force busing just changed the whole basketball map. Yeah. And then it, it really, it sort of predates AAU, but what happens is now you're not getting the stronger programs, mm -hmm. the public schools and hoops like that, mm -hmm. um, because either kids got bust out, or when people's parents started doing a little better in the early to mid seventies, they yes. actually moved to Miller, they actually moved to Randolph, they moved to Newton, they moved to Natick, they moved to Wellesley, they moved mm -hmm. to Framingham. So now the kids are playing for like David Thompson and Ch the, our David Thompson, no, not the James Thompson. They're playing for Stoughton. Yeah, probably five years before that, they wouldn't have been at Stoughton. They would have been like maybe at English or someplace like mm -hmm. that. So this changes everything as far as basketball is concerned, but the big thing is that it changes recruiting. So now we're watching television and we're seeing players in the Big East. We're seeing players in the ACC. We're seeing players in uh, the Big Ten, which were recruited by schools that actually get recruiting, you know, as opposed to digging through the hood, watching BABC games, uh, trying to find AA, trying to find the kids who actually get into AAU and find somebody like a, a Leo who mm -hmm. actually Papil who actually goes in the hood and does the work for them, mm -hmm. and this changes the game entirely. So when it we doesn't change the summers no. because it's still always the Titans, Brodsky, yeah. the it's always the same. The South End Squires. Mm -hmm. Always the same strong summer league. The kids always know each other. Yes. Whether it's Jimmy Walker's area with Spider Bennett and those guys, and Range is working with them, and Sam Jones is working those guys out. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the late 60s guys and Harry and Leo are whooping up on kids, and those kids come up and become great players like Ronnie Lee. Whether it's the mid-70s with the Jam and James Baileys, the Felton Sealys, uh, the Paul Littles, and they're... Paul Little out of Boston Latin. Working out, they're working out people, and those kids become better because they're... If you're 13 and 14, you're really good. They'll let you play with them. Yes. Like people let Dana and Ramil play with them when they were young. They always knew who each other were. It's just that they, there's so many different options as terms, in terms of where to go to school. Yeah. 
by the time those those people come around, um, you know, the Butch Wade era. Oh, who went to Michigan? Went to Michigan. That was D1. Mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years before that, a kid from his high school, I think he went to, not East, which way he went to, um, to East. Yeah, he did go to East. They, they Michigan, no. no. Because Michigan would, would be recruiting a kid at a school that has good swimming, good track and field, good basketball, good yes. football, a big, well-funded school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like a lot of things happen in Boston that a lot of y'all who aren't from Boston don't understand. Like one of the big things that happened was when Boston Latin moved out of the Boston City League to the Dual County League, and that changed recruiting. So Paul Little gets recruited more because he's not dealing with Boston South of North. He's coming out of the DCL, which is the Dual County League. He's playing Wayland North. He's yes. Uh, uh, Conquer Carlisle. Conquer Yeah. And he's playing against kids, in most cases, a lot of those kids whose parents had, you know, a couple dollars. Yeah. So um, now when we come up to post-1979, 1980, we kind of start with um, who else? Well, Patrick Pat Ewan. And Patrick Ewan was a freshman. CRLS had a completely different uniform. They had a different coach. They were kind of low budget. They, yes. <laughs> Black and white well, uniforms. Mean, they, <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't even merge those schools to become the one school until I think the 60s. Yeah. So there used to be like Ringe Tech, which was a basketball power. They had these big six, 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 seven guys, the Stead brothers, who mm-hmm. went on to play at like Villanova and places like that. They had DJ Jarvis, Richie Jarvis. They had Mike Jarvis. The uh, Mike Jarvis. Pat's coach and the mm-hmm. GW coach and the uh, St. John's coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And they, they, were, they were a power when, they were, when the school was just called Wrench Tech. They merged with Cambridge Latin, mm-hmm. and then it became a bigger school. Mm-hmm. And Pat immigrates here when he's 14, yes. and they get this gift on Mike Jarvis's lap. But they were already they were nice before that. They had, um, before that, they had Paul Little in the mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I told you Gary Burke did one yes. of his uh, obligatory stints yeah. there. But they were, you know, they were, they were all, they were high school sports. The first person that ever jumped seven foot in the high jump, John Thomas, went to Wrench. Yes. So they were sports power. Mm-hmm. And from there, they get a national reputation, and you see Patrick Ewing everywhere. And from then, there's a light shined in Boston on their basketball again since 1972, which is crazy because the biggest stories I remember as a kid was. Larry Bird has just showed up on the Celtics, and there's this kid, Patrick Ewing, <laughs> at Cambridge Ridge Latin. Yeah. When Ewing was a freshman and sophomore, especially sophomore, he was on TV about something or other every week. If he wasn't on Bob Lobel's show, Jimmy Mize was talking about him. Sometimes he was on Black News. They covered that kid, even in the offseason, like every week. Because this, like, this 6'11 kid, that everybody, back then, you know, nobody was going to go unless you were Moses or Bill Willoughby or Daryl Dark. They knew that the kid was going to go to college somewhere. You're not going to go straight to the pros. No. If you're because he was sort of a rough, he was a work in progress. Mm-hmm. So Boston was fascinated. Like, we just got this 6'11 kid dropped in our lap. He played in four shootouts. They never won a shootout. No. <laughs> he played in four shootouts. I mean, so now he's being recruited to the level like a Ralph Sampson was. To the point where he got called in to, to work out for the national team before the Olympics when he was, what, in the 11th grade? Yeah, like the Pan Am Games or something. Yes, yeah. the Pan Am Same Games and the, and, the, um, and the Olympics. Yeah, so that, that 
team is, is in the national media, they would be like a Dunbar of Baltimore in the sense that people yeah. cover them because now you have USA Today and there's national rankings and, mm -hmm. and we can start to quantify these teams and things. Mm -hmm. And they play people from other states. Yes. So you could say, well, how would they do against a Wilbur Croft? Because they played Wilbur Croft. Mm -hmm. They got destroyed, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, now we're coming through the era of the 80s where people are showing up not just in the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald, but the Sunday edition of Parade. You know, they're showing up in Street and Smith's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Athlon Sports, uh, all these scholastic magazines. They're appearing, and you're seeing teams from Massachusetts in them with these known players. So this is the explosion of the 80s, which lends to us when we start doing the throwback uniforms. Exactly. So um, could we talk about that era, especially like the explosion of uh, college basketball mm -hmm. with, the, the, with the expansion of cable in the Big East? Big Dave Gavitt changes everything. Yeah. When, when, you have, when you have Providence or BC or Villanova or Georgetown yes. or, or Seton Hall or Center on TV every Monday, and you're a kid from Eastern Mass, and you see you know, these older guys like Mike Herons on, you know, on TV, it's different because now it's like, and even like the Yankee Conference with URI and the strong players that were up, you know, UNH and BU, you're seeing these people who are now testing their mettle in regulation games against the best kids Harlem and Brooklyn and the Bronx have to offer, like Pearl Washington. Yes. And they're taking games off people like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the John Bagleys and you know, Michael, they're taking games off people like that. And a lot of these are New England kids. Bagley and Adams are New England kids. Mm -hmm. uh, Tommy Garrick is a New England kid uh, from, uh, from, from Rhode Island. Yes. So what that does is now kids want to play for a Gary Williams at BC, or they want to play for Rick Pitino at BU, mm -hmm. because at least you're on television and sometimes national. Mm -hmm. So now you want to say, well, where do I want to go to high school? I want to go to a high school that's going to be a pipeline to like a Big East level or exposure level school. And most of those schools were, were close to home. Yes. So one of the things I remember as a kid was seeing guys like, of course, you know, Patrick Ewing. It was a big deal when Patrick Ewing decided to go to Georgetown over BC. It was a huge deal. Um, but seeing uh, guys like Dana Barrows go to BC to replace a John Bagley and succeed. Uh, living in a place where we have, in our backyard playing, we have um, a guy from Baltimore named Reggie Lewis, and he plays against a, some kid from New York uh, who ends up being the father of this guy who played for the Celtics who left, uh, <laughs> Dedrick, Dedrick Irving, and who, him. Who could play. And who hung around the city and played with these young guys at all these different courts. That changed the way we looked at basketball. It and changed the way Kyrie looked at basketball when he thought about coming here and playing pro because his dad had regaled him with all these tales of mm -hmm. playing with, against this person in the mm -hmm. street, that person in the street. So he, he mm -hmm. grew up knowing about yeah. this stuff. In 1988-89, uh, his dad won a championship in this local league with a team called the Decepticons. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember hearing stories about them. And then, of course, there's like the small uh, semi-pro summer leagues that people played in. Yeah, all you the know. kids from like Assumption and Bentley and mm -hmm. all the kids, you know, from the smaller schools that could really, mm -hmm. could really go. Mm -hmm. They played in the summer and then, you know, by, by the early to mid 80s, after the whole Pat recruiting piece, yes. Dana Barrows and Rumil grew up watching Pat mm -hmm. attract, you know, be like this, 
you know, energy source that attracts all this national pub, even in print and TV, to Boston. So now guys know if I sharpen my game, which was not the case for Leo Osgood or Harry Barnes, yeah. like that, they if have I the opportunity. really, really work and go to Reds camp and go here and do that and lift weights and go to Ernie D's camp and, 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 and get on a good 16 and under team that goes around the country. And also to, Leo will find us and put us on yeah, the ABC. I know I'm going to get seen now. And, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm getting, and, and the local press is covering everybody differently after Pat. Yes. It's not just the Pats. And the Sox and the Bruins and mm -hmm. the colleges and track and field and, mm -hmm. and the marathon and then it's like the city that produced Patrick. Now we gotta we gotta talk about schoolboy ball in a different way. Yeah, and the crazy thing is that there's a year I can't remember exactly what year it is where um, before BNBL scores didn't really show up in the paper, but there was a year where all of a sudden there's a specific section where every single region of the BNBL is covered. And when it gets to the championships, we'll see it in the paper. If, we're, if not, we'll see it in the local paper, like the South End News. Yeah. So, like, that changes everything as far as I'm sport. And winning, winning the shootout also changes everything because the years that they win, it's a validating source to the kids that are, like, 11, 12, 13. Like, yeah. wait a minute, we beat yeah. these New Orleans, Chicago, the LA. Yeah. Tracy Murray, we beat Tracy Murray. It's like, and the kids are like, okay, I got an older brother or whatever, older sister, what have you. I can really do something with this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be you know, consider this, you're not New York, you're not Philly, you're not D.C., you're not Baltimore, you know that. <laughs> After Pat went to three national championships and came within five points of winning three rings mm -hmm. in three years, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it changes the conversation, especially when somebody like Dana Barrows beats New York almost single-handedly. And all those guys from New York have to go home and explain that they lost to a bunch of guys from Boston. <laughs> guys from Boston. Yeah, yeah. So um, you wrote a book that um, I, as somebody who knows basketball somewhat, <laughs> I'm not as n knowledgeable as some people are, and I defer to them. You wrote a book about Massachusetts basketball and the Boston Vineyards and the Islands and how it affected, you know, basketball as a whole and basketball in the region. Was it? Was it? Yeah, that, What's that, it about? Uh, Martha's Vineyard Basketball is a book that surprises a lot of people just in its very title. Yes. <laughs> Martha's Vineyard is a place where everybody has money mm -hmm. and everybody's that is there physically, their body is there mm -hmm. on vacation, which yes. is not the case right now because vacation season is over. Yes. There are actually 15,000 people that live there year round, mm -hmm. but in the mid 70s, there was only 7,000 people that lived there year, year round, right mm -hmm. before Jaws was filmed in 74. Mm -hmm. So, what happens is because basketball was invented in Springfield, it largely grew in this state to Connecticut and New York from this state in YMCA's because obviously it's invented by a Y director. Yes. And so this state got all the early good teaching and, and clinicians and girls teams and Smith College and Cinda Berenson was the woman that was sort of like the Johnny Appleseed of the women's game, which yes. is Smith. And the, the residue of that is that most kids grow up versed in the game. I mean, there might have been Bobby Orr rings and all this hockey craze, but you know, because of Koozie and because of the 11 rings, people know that there's something going on, mm -hmm. even on the Cape and the Islands. And Naismith actually invented the sport six months after he, he had attended a, attended a summer, sort of like a phys ed camp or institute on the vineyard. So he goes to this summer camp in 1891. You learn all these things at these seminars and workshops that will uh, benefit you in teaching phys ed. Different, different calisthenics and things like that. 
different things that uh, people are finding effective best practices around the country. Mm -hmm. And he's tasked with inventing a new sport to, as a bridge between the, the weather when, in which you can play football and the warm weather that comes back to Springfield when you can play baseball, an indoor sport, mm -hmm. ideally. Yeah. And that's when he invents basketball, six months after that Vineyard Summer Institute. Wow. So the Vineyard has had high school teams since like the early 1900s, before 1910 aughts, mm -hmm. whatever we want to call that decade. The explosion of uh, basketball, uh, football in college. Mm -hmm. And then because, again, these kids who are the parent, the, the sons and daughters or grandchildren of people who used to work for well-to-do Boston families on the Cape and the Islands. Yeah. The short, the long and short of it is the people who are like the laundresses and the hairdressers and hairstylists and chauffeurs for well-to-do Boston families on the venue would save up their money in the 20s and 30s and 40s and buy the guest cottage that they used to live in as household staff. Wow. And the guest cottages, when they bought them, they would take their kids there in the 50s and 60s. And then the people who would be like the mother or, or son of those people, the people that were household staff, owned those houses by the 60s and the 70s. So a lot of kids from like Rock, Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, or even because there was more school integration than kids from the suburbs, mm -hmm. would go there in the summer. And in 1970, there was a summer league formed there. Hmm. And it was a pretty strong one because not only did you have those kids whose parents were from greater Boston who summered there, but you also had kids from Brooklyn and Harlem and Newark and Queens and Philly whose parents summered there. And it's such, because it's such a very small place, and Oak Bluff specifically yes. is small, everybody during the baby boom came down to those courts to either play in the games in the morning. Well, in the morning, you could play in a league. Like if you were 9 to 11, you played in one league. 11 to 13, another one was called the ABA. If you were 13 to 15, you played in one called semi-pro. And if you were like a high school kid or a college kid, or you could really play like a, a person out of school, mm -hmm. you would play at night in something that they called the NBA because all the teams were named at the NBA. <laughs> so wow. you would play like, you know, right before they turn the lights on. Mm -hmm. So some kids would go there three times a day. They, and this, this kid could be from like Harlem, Brooklyn, Bronx, anywhere. This kid would go in the morning when he was a little kid and play in the morning games in his league, which was called college or if he got older, semi-pro. Then they would open up the Oak Bluffs court in the park. In the afternoon, they had what they call free play, which is pickup. You could play between 1.30 and 5. Sometimes the little kids would play on their end until the big guys wanted to run full, court. Know, full court. And then they, you know, so I hope that's off. <laughs> but you played there 1.30 to 5. Then you go eat. Then at night, you would come down and watch the kids that were playing for their high schools, whether they were at Brighton or, or whether they were from Springfield, Providence, what have you. Mm -hmm. And those guys would run at night. So you've been to that court three times. That court consumed your entire day. Yes. If you didn't play and you were too old to play or too young to play or before they had um, girls integrated onto the boys' teams, like around 74, you would watch because your brother or your cousin or your sister was down there playing. So between watching, playing, or local vineyard kids who also played down there, mm -hmm. who also got better, mm -hmm. because in the summer, they're playing against kids from Harlem and the Bronx and Roxbury and Mattapan and Newark and Philly mm -hmm. and D.C., they're getting better. So by the time, I'd say by the early 70s, the vineyard has a high school team which has a kid who moved from Newark after the Newark riots. Wow. Because their parents wanted to live in a safer mm -hmm. element environment. 
They had a kid from D.C. who transferred from D.C. Well, this is the story. Dr. King gets killed. Yes. His parents come to, to the vineyard on their summer vacation as a routine in 68, mm -hmm. and they just never moved back to Washington. He had just been, he was a ninth grader, and he was a strong CYO player in D.C. His name was Amari Bannister. Oh, yeah. And Morgan Wooten offered him a scholarship to DeMatha the same year he offered one to Adrian Dantley. Wow. So he would have been at DeMatha 69 to 72. But after the riots, he moved to the Vineyard. So the Vineyard has Amari Bannister, who's from D.C., Ralph Robinson, who's really from Newark, yeah. and then good Vineyard kids who are playing against kids from all over the East End Seaboard in the summertime, mm -hmm. so they're not afraid of anybody. Yes. So by 72 and 73, the Vineyard has like a 22 and one team <laughs> and a 23 and one team. They're going like three or four rounds into the state mm -hmm. with a high school of 400 people. Yeah. They, they played in 76. They went to the states and they went to the South Sectional. Because of the size of the school, they played Cathedral. When Cathedral had Mimi James, and Gary Burke and Dewan Chandler. The Vineyard was beating them 22-19 in the first quarter. They were beating a team with Dewan the man on it. They were beating them, and the Vineyard was only behind 31-30 at the half. This is a true story. The coach of Martha's Vineyard Regional High, Jay Schofield, tells everybody this. He said, when we're walking through the tunnel to go to the locker room in the garden, he said, I heard one of the kids from Cathedral say, man, those kids can play. They're only behind by one at the half, and the reason is, Lily Pope from Brighton High, who yeah. plays for the Titans, summered on the vineyard. So they've already seen guys <laughs> like this all the time. And, and there's not that many kids faster than Lily Pope. Yeah. So you figure if you got to guard him, Dewan Chandler, you know, I'll do the best I can with Dewan Chandler. Mm -hmm. Now, in the fourth quarter, size and, 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 and depth overpowered them, and they didn't win the game. But um, that just gives you a sense of how, when you've played with people from all over the country, mm -hmm. kids used to come from Howard and Hampton. Yes. On the reputation of a vineyard kid whose parents had a, a summer home there would tell them that there was good pickup ball there. So he would bring some of his boys from either Howard or Hampton. They would be like, I'm going to beat some, some rich kid. They ain't going to beat Ted Kennedy. And mm -hmm. There's not going to be no ball. And the kids would come from Howard and Hampton and play pickup. They couldn't even get in the games. Yes. <laughs> so that's that tradition. And the girls actually won the state in 79-81. Again, because size of school, they're playing like cathedral. They're playing like... Um, Schools like Michelle Edwards' high school oh, and Robin wow. Christian's high school and beating them. Wow. And the other thing is these kids have been playing together since they were in grammar school. That's a, see, so that's they the, don't that's have to look thing. at each other when they pass. Yes, that's a key thing. Yeah, they've been playing together since they were in grammar school and they play together all summer. Yeah. So the telepathy on the court, mm. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't, yeah. Yeah, and I have to, can't stress this enough. Boston Titans, huge, huge uh, team in this region. Uh, fielded legendary players, great coaches, uh, greater people. Um, and Michelle Edwards is a Boston legend herself. Uh, grew, nice. up, grew up around the neighborhood, uh, played overseas, was great in the NCAA. Uh, yeah, ended up playing. Vivian Stringer is just not knocking Stringer. on anybody's yeah, door. Yeah, see, Vivian Stringer isn't going to go to someone's home and recruit them just anywhere. She and Robin Christian. Yes. And uh, she actually played in, um, she came back home and played ABL. in the, uh, the ABL, then she came into the WNBA, played for the mm -hmm. Cleveland Rockers. Uh, so, yeah, I could talk about Avril Roberts, her, and then, and a whole all, bunch of people. All the kids that come out of the Cooper Community Center that played for them, yes. all the girls, uh, Roxbury, Roxbury Community College girls team used, yes. to, used to go to the national championships and do work. Yes, you know? yes. The Cooper Comets, also another uh, another regional staple. Uh, 
And the RCC, oh God, RCC fielded some of the greatest men and women's teams of the 80s through the 90s through the zeros. And that's something we have to talk about at some point. So, um, yeah, there's, there's so many, there's so much talent that there's going to be some D2, some D3. There's going to be some kids that suffer. There's going to be some kids at UMass. I mean, UMass Boston is a nice size school, but yeah. even when it was Boston State, mm -hmm. they're going to get some of these kids because yes. by that, by the late 70s and early 80s, to your point, if you're in the dual county and you could really play, yeah. you were going to get some type of college scholarship. Yeah. And Boston State had some powerhouse teams playing in D3 in the small New England college, uh, Division three, uh, small uh, New England college division. They won a lot of championships. Charlie Titus. Charlie Titus was there. I believe, who was the, who was the coach who was a um, former Celtic? Oh yeah, they had um, Jungle Jim Luskatov. Yeah, so, so Lusky was their coach. They won a lot. Assumption whooped up on a lot of people in the D, D3 championship. Bentley, yeah. Bentley. was killing people. Uh, if you go back, I, I, again, I do nothing but research. So if you go back and you research the best uh, teams in the region, Bentley will show up on every single poll at the top. Bentley, Bentley. They're the one, two, or three. And you'll see Boston State College. You'll see Assumption. You'll AIC used to oh, destroy yes. people. AIC Jimmy out of Springfield. Cal, the Jimmy Calhoun, they, yeah. they would destroy people. AIC out of Springfield. Um, and, of course, you know, we have the Boston universities and Boston colleges who, you know, got some. Northeastern would get some, yeah. some of the kids. But Northeastern would mostly get kids from, you know, the, in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Perry Moss played on the – talk about going back to the vineyard, Perry Moss played pickup and a little bit of summer league there. Mm -hmm. I've seen – I've played with David Wesley over there, a little bit of pickup. Mm -hmm. Todd Day used to come over. Oh, uh, Todd Day. <laughs> yeah, we won't – let's not talk about Todd, the connection with the Seas. Oh, Jesus Christ, Todd Day. Yeah, he – I got a little bit a whiff of why he was like that even when he was just shooting around. I was like, this yeah. guy's coming. Everybody has their Todd Day story. <laughs> I got one that between ninety around. between ninety one and ninety three, I can't run into anybody who played basketball in the city. I was sixteen and eighteen <laughs> who doesn't have their Todd Day stories. I, I, we, we, we played Brian with Brian Oliver. He didn't stay long in Boston, but I got some Brian Oliver stories too. When um, the week that come the week that Kyrie okay. signed with the Cavaliers. Yes. Fourth of July weekend, he was playing pickup ball in the vineyard. Yeah. When he learned that he was, we learned that he was a Cavalier because he, his dad told him about mm -hmm. this this region. Yeah. Uh, so, is there anything we haven't talked about oh. that you want to touch on? There's there's just some there's some traditions. We talked about pipelines. Yes. But there's some traditions, and I have some theories. You'll have some theories. Yes. Everybody's gonna have some theories as to how these traditions became so strong. Okay. We've always had good, small players that can run on offense and can really, really handle the ball. Yes. I mean, it goes down through the pipeline. It started with, like, the Jerry Shaws and the, and the Roscoe Bakers and the Jeeps. Jeep Jones. And then it comes through the Walker, and Walker, you know, Walker's handling and yeah. control of the ball is just tremendous. Through Because people are trying to emulate these guys through the Danas and the Ramils, mm -hmm. you know, down through the Monty, whatever you think of Monty's handle or Depina and guys like that. Yeah. Um, and even up in, you know, up in the suburbs like the Shannon Crookses. They, you know, when they were getting a game against national mm -hmm. high school. Like a Jamal cars, Kamal or yeah, Anthony they, who would Anthony who just go. They just at will. Yeah. Like no one can stop them. Blaylock, uh, Shabbat. They can just yeah. go to the Yeah, Shabazz. Nobody's stopping them guys going to the hole. Because after Koozie and, and some other people, that became like a local pride thing, mm -hmm. and, and you talked, you've talked about it all. Yes. Like, <laughs> if you couldn't drink, people, it's almost like Harlem. Like if you can't dribble here, people are like, then you must have li literally probably never picked up a basketball because yeah. everybody can dribble. Yes. 
Uh, so I tell stories, and one of my things, formative years coming up, I grew up around New Edition. And those guys played nothing but basketball. Growing up in the South End, Lower Roxbury, it's basketball, basketball, basketball all the time. And one of the guys was Mike Bivens, who got on me as a kid because I couldn't go between my legs. He was like, nah, come on, man. You're going to be tall. Come on. How you going to play ball? You can't go between your legs. You ain't got no... Dude, all you got to just drop the ball and catch it. Drop it and catch it. You don't have to push the ball. <laughs> so I, So basketball, especially dribbling, was crucial because that's how you... Did anything. That's how you got playing time if you were younger than the older yes. guys. They would let you play if you could. If you the could short kid who could handle the ball and get pass. and go up if and down the court. With the bigger. So again, um, another thing, sticking point, passing the ball. In Boston, I don't know about the regions, but there's this thing called being a hun. And if you if you were a black hole, if you held the ball, you could get beaten up, and stabbed and hurt badly. So it was. Ball movement was crucial in this region. Yeah, it is. And when, and when people watch a game and you're watching a game with somebody from Southeastern Mass, like a pro game on TV, <laughs> yes. the criticism of what's not going on on the weak side, who's not moving, yes. why are you waiting around? Why are you standing there? Is like, is like DNA in Southeastern <laughs> Mass. It could be a, a five-year-old girl on a travel team. Mm -hmm. She'll be like, go on top of the script. The, the IQ here, Yes. The, thank you, Mr. Cousy, <laughs> is just... Unreal with kids that really didn't play high level ball. I mean, but they played in the street and they, yeah. their uncles and their father, they just know ball. Girls yeah. know ball. Everybody just mm -hmm. knows ball. I was eight years old the first time a girl yelled at me because I didn't set a screen. <laughs> you have to, you, in some cities, if you're physical or, again, you have a decent handle or you can, or you can really shoot, mm -hmm. if you're a little bit underage of the average player on that pickup court, near your house that's the that's the hottest court, you can get some burn. Yes. In Boston and in New Bedford and Fall River, River. all these working clubs, Lynn and mm -hmm. Lowell and all these towns that have produced all these players over the years, you have to be doing other things when you're not shooting that show Absolutely. that you know the game. If you're not like sitting, you have to be able to play. Yeah. The way I was able to stay on the court playing with some high-level talent and a lot of the people that I played with and grew up with and knew and the reason why I can have conversations with a lot of these guys because they recognize me from being the guy who was always on the court is because I did everything possible to help the team win even if I wasn't scoring. I was rebounding, I was screening off, I was taking charges, I was blocking shots, I was playing. Because Channel 38. Yes. They're shouting that stuff out. You know, Heinsohn is shouting that yeah. stuff out. So when you're a little kid, you see that they're shouting out Little things the DJ is doing. Yes. Little things the ML car is doing. They're not lighting it up. And they're replaying it. And they're showing, okay. And, and even even the guys that are lighting it up, like Bird, mm -hmm. there's subtle things that he's doing mm -hmm. that you're seeing on replay as you're growing up, like, oh. The ball you make, fake. You can make a man do that if you do this. Yes. The, his ball fake, him looking somebody off, him holding the ball like this while he's still driving. His pump makes fake it, is like a jumper. Yes, exactly. <laughs> His pump fake is a jumper. You can't tell that he's not going to release yes. this. Yeah. One of the crucial things, one of the most important things I remember as a kid, I've talked about this online, when Dennis Johnson cut to the hoop after Larry Bird stole the ball. It's almost like he anticipated Larry was going to steal the ball. So he's cutting to the hoop. And as he's cutting to the hoop, Larry throws him the pass. As DJ's cutting to the hoop, he notices there's a trailer. There's somebody who could possibly block the shot. So rather than lay up at the front of the rim, what does Dennis Johnson do? 
he does a reverse layup off the glass. So if he does hit it, it's off the glass and it's going to be a goaltend. So, and then after the ball goes in, Dennis Johnson starts defending the man taking out the ball and he doesn't stop until they call the timeout. I saw that when I was 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> and that informed everything I needed to know about how to play basketball. Not just watching, and there were other kids who would go, they'd see, uh, they'd see Dr. J, mm -hmm. they'd see uh, Michael Jordan, and they would try to do impossible layups that he did. And the kids didn't have big hands. Yes. I was like, you, one, you can't palm the ball. Two, you're not 6'6". Six, six. Two, you, three, you don't have 44 to 48-inch vertical leap. So what you're doing... You're, you're working on something that you're not going to be able to... Yes. But what I could do is I could practice a reverse layup. So, like, these are things that we learned that are in our DNA as young kids growing up. Older and, brothers. Yep. Yeah. You know? You know? The Heron learning all that from Mike Heron and, yes. and his older brothers. Uh, Having older guys from the 50s and 60s who actually played yell at you about what you're doing wrong on the court, how you're out of position. For every Wayne, there's a brother like Tiny. Yes. You know, so, mm -hmm. you know, people have siblings. Uh, the Jarvises were siblings. The Dottons over in Cambridge, all siblings. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're going to, you can't even have a decent conversation at the dinner table if you don't become respectable <laughs> because you, they're going to be capping on you like, because you're the little brother, you know, you got to get at least good. Yeah, you, you have no left hand. <laughs> and, and, and out of that comes, you get so good playing with them that when you go play against somebody else, you're like, oh, he ain't even as good as my brothers. Yeah. Or my sister, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. in many cases in this region, it's your sister. Yep. So um, I feel like we touched on pretty much everything. Um, uh, I'm glad to finally have you here to talk about so many things and, and provide so much like context and back history about Boston, Massachusetts basketball and how we got to where we are here. And oh, I really appreciate it because it's, 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 it is appreciated as a hotbed now, mm -hmm. but the, to, to some of the things that we touched on, the ways in which these things happen, whether they were organic, accidental, happenstance, family relations, it's, it's much more interesting to explore it in the layers or the nuance mm -hmm. than it is to be like, oh, and then there was these six guys in 72, and then there was this seven-footer seven that came out in 81. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a whole bunch of social dynamic of who was living where and who could afford to do what and who could transfer, who was from the West End. There's a lot of families that are both. Yes. They're like West Indian immigrant married Southern immigrant. Mm -hmm. That's not... Common and other like Howard Bryant. The I'm just using him for yes. example. The, the sports writer. One side of his family is Barbados, and mm -hmm. the other side is is an immigrant from the mm -hmm. south. In no. my in my instance, my father is from Honduras, Central America. My mother is from the South, Alabama, Montgomery County. And what happens? Everybody comes to Boston and Aaron Roxbury, and we're next to everybody else. Every food, every music, yeah. Latinness, Calypso, Reggae. Growing up Reggae. listening to Soko and Calypso on WILD. Heavy Dominican population now. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot of exposure. And the other thing is, when you have 60 colleges within like a 15-mile <laughs> it's, it's it's just an educated and curious and intellectual and an inquisitive ecosystem to grow up in. Yes. The the Christian Science Life, the headquarters for this, all the religions and the, you know, Reverend Ike, yes. Dr. King, every all the great ministers who first ministered here, from mm -hmm. Malcolm to Dr. Dr. King, King to James Farmer mm -hmm. to, to the Honorable Louis Farrakhan. On, on, you know, on and on and on. Howard Thurman was at yes. 
So your grandmothers and your aunts and your mothers were all listening to these guys, you know, mm -hmm. sermonize. And that, you know, has some, where you are really has a, a profound, no matter what you're going to do, has an effect on you because people are coming to you. They're coming to Harvard and BU and Boston College. Mm -hmm. You're not going out, there was no internet. Yeah. You're not going to them. They're coming to you because mm -hmm. it's, the, it's supposedly the cradle of, of liberty yes. and the cra cradle of freedom. So Boston is sort of a magnet that, that brings um, an inordinate education where, you know, I know like there's a lot of people from Eastern Mass that have a very good grasp of American history because they took Massachusetts history in school yeah. and you had to pass Massachusetts history to mm -hmm. get out of school. Mm -hmm. well, Massachusetts is a very old state. Yeah. So if you know Massachusetts history, you might know a little bit more about mm -hmm. the colonial era than a kid who had to take yes. New Mexico history. Yeah, perfect example. There's an Apple TV show right now called Dickinson, and I'm watching it, and, I'm, and I can pick out what's inaccurate in the history, and it's not because I studied Emily Dickinson. It's because I'm from Massachusetts and Robert Boston. Ross is from Lowell. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm like, no, they didn't meet yet. No, that didn't happen <laughs> yet. She wasn't there when he died. How do I know this? Because old, I grew up here. The oldest everything. Yes. Oldest subway, oldest, oldest yeah. everything. Oldest yep. GE engine is from Lynn. I went to the oldest Boston, Boston oldest school in, in Boston, in America, and then the right. oldest public school in America. And Girls Night is the oldest girl. So, so we're, so it's not like a bragging rights thing or a New York, you know, we're not saying anybody can't play. Philly's not this, DC's not that. It's just that this is a hub of like everything. Yes. And everything was invented here. If you, if you the chocolate it, chip cookie was invented every, here. Boston people, everything uh, yeah. was invented here. Waitresses. Yes. Uh, uh, the, the the steakhouse and the and the seafood restaurant was invented here. The toothpick was invented public here. Public TV was invented here. Public yeah. schools were invented here. Yeah. Public libraries. Were invented. <laughs> we're sitting in a public libraries. Where were invented. Invented. this is the Boston Library in America. <laughs> Basketball was invented in this state. Yeah. Uh, the first pro dynasty was in this state. The first Refriger black, refrigeration. The first black pro player. Yeah. Was, was in the Merrimack Valley, Bucky yes. Lou. Yes, so exactly. it's not hyperbole, it's just for a small area, for a small region, per capita, mm -hmm. it has produced a lot of great players, especially guards because of the, the IQ. Mm -hmm. And it's, what if you learn the reasons, it's very interesting because it's not the same reasons that Philly has a strong game, yes. or, or Chicago New York has a strong game, or Chicago being like Alabama and Mississippi migrant, or mm -hmm. Detroit being Alabamians. Yes, it's a different piece, and that's and that's all it is. Mm -hmm. Not better; it's just different. It's just what but it is. But it is better. <laughs> all right, so glad to have you on, uh, Bajon Bain, a Boston legend. Finally, finally. <laughs> all right, thank you guys. One.